Welcome to episode 145. Today, I'm taking a question from a listener about screen time. Why do some kids get sucked in and others don't? You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, Danae here. I thank you for tuning in. This is episode 145. And in today's episode, I am taking a question from an audience member who wants to know more about screen time and why does it have more negative implications for some kids as opposed to others? And what are my recommendations as far as screen time? What do I do with my own kids? So today we're going to be going into everything I know and everything I don't know because there's a whole lot of that too about screen time. But before we get into that, here's a word from today's sponsor. So to give you a little background on how I work with podcast sponsors is typically a company will contact me, I will sample the product, make sure that it's something I really love and support and can get behind, and then I'll share it with you all. This usually happens via email. Occasionally, it'll be a phone call with the marketing representative for the company, but most of it's all through written correspondence. So immediately when today's sponsor, which is Branch Basics, contacted me, I knew that they were going to be different. They wanted a phone call. They wanted to tell me more about their company, which I do truly appreciate the opportunity to be able to ask questions. So in this case, it wasn't a call with a marketing representative. It was the call with the founders, all three founders of this company. So the three founders, Marilee, Kelly, and Allison, spent 45 minutes telling me their stories and how they started this company. And then they fielded every one of my crazy questions. You all know I can ask a lot of questions. It was evident that this is absolutely a product that they are passionate about. So I was so excited to try it myself. So Branch Basics is a line of cleaning products. They're plant and mineral based. They don't have any harmful preservatives. They don't test on animals. It's biodegradable, non-GMO. And it actually works. I have loved our Branch Basics products the past couple months as I've been using them. We have the starter kit and it enabled us to eliminate all of our old cleaning products. And we've actually eliminated our cleaning closet and turned it into a book closet for our kids. Rather than having a bunch of miscellaneous different types of things, just a really simplified system. Very low waste, very low effort, and a very effective product. So I encourage you, choose to clean your house safely and effectively with Branch Basics. My listeners get 15% off of a starter kit by going to branchbasics.com and entering the code SIMPLE at checkout. Again, that's branchbasics.com with the promo code SIMPLE to get 15% off your starter kit. All right, back to today's episode. So I want to put a disclaimer in here today. I'm going to get all sciencey on you, but I want to say I am not a neuroscientist. My PhD is in child development, and in my child development training, I do have a basic understanding of neuroscience. But the things that we're talking about today are things that I have read up on on my own and studied more from a personal interest in better understanding my own children and my own family dynamics. So if you're listening and you are a neuroscientist or a neuropsychologist and you have input on this or you think that there's more information that needs to be shared, I would love to hear from you. Or if you think that I messed this all up and I'm giving misinformation, I'd love to hear from you too. I think as with anything, we need to be advocates for ourselves and advocates for our children. So I don't want you to take this information that I'm giving you today and think that it applies 
straight up to your family because it doesn't. As with anything I share with you, I hope that you take what feels right and what suits you and leave what doesn't. So I'm going to do my best today to simplify things and explain all this in a way that you can easily understand. But we'll start with my audience question. This is coming from Sandy. So sometimes when I get questions for the podcast from audience members, I'll email back and forth a couple times just to get clarification and make sure that we're covering it right. So I'm going to read you the exchange. Sandy wrote, Hi, Danae. I have children about the same age as yours, and I'm wondering how much screen time happens in your home. I have one child who can't seem to have any whatsoever before she turns into a monster, and the other may watch a show for a few minutes but continues to actively play throughout, mostly ignoring the TV. Overall, we are conscious of screen time and go days without any and limit it to about an hour on days when it does happen. I guess I'm just hoping to see how you do things now. So I wrote back to Sandy asking for the age of her children and to tell me a little bit more about the personality types. So she wrote that her daughter, who can't seem to get enough screen time, turned four in March and her son turned two in January. She went on to say, I would describe them as opposites. Anna has always been more sensitive to noise and other stimuli right from the get-go and immediately after birth. She's extremely cautious, but very bright academically. Ian is much more easygoing and quite a problem solver. Anna walked early at about eight months and never crawled. She's continued to be extremely physically active. We first introduced Anna to TV, some old school Sesame Street, just before she turned two. It was when Ian was a newborn, we were moving, and I was feeling overwhelmed. She was immediately glued to it. She didn't behave like most kids I saw who would continue to play and watch TV here and there while it was still on. She sat and zombied and still does this to this day. Ian enjoys TV, but definitely not to the extent that Anna does. So when I read this, a few things stood out to me. One was that the daughter, the four-year-old, was very physically active, but also simultaneously very much zombied by television. The next thing that stood out was the mention of her sensory sensitivities. So I wanted to understand a little bit more about this. So I asked Sandy, have you ever had any reason to suspect that Anna might have some attention or sensory integration challenges? Not that I'm making that diagnosis based on her description, but I think it's an important piece to understand when we're looking at screen time and the way that different brains can handle screen time in different ways. So she wrote back, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I have suspected. When Anna was about two, I found myself researching sensory issues and I stumbled upon the book, The Highly Sensitive Child, in which I found I could personally relate to some of the characteristics too. However, as she ages, I find that she's better able to deal with loud noises like vacuums, hand dryers, and public bathrooms. But it was a very stressful event for both of us until she realized she could cover her ears and understand that those noises are usually brief and that she could just walk away. I haven't pursued a diagnosis because I believe she has been gradually improving as she learns coping mechanisms, and I've been trying to understand and accept her as a highly sensitive child. I know there are thousands of you out there listening who have a story that's very similar to Sandy's. I know this because I get contacted constantly from parents who are describing children who look almost exactly like Sandy's child, and I have one of those children who looks almost exactly like Sandy's child. We've always limited screen time, and I've always been very rigid about this. Rigid to the point where I've definitely beaten myself up when I've given my kids too much screen time, and I carry a lot of guilt about screen time when I do that. As a child development expert, I know that the research shows that young children need minimal amounts of screen time. But as a mother, my intuition has also told me 
that my oldest, my son, needs next to nothing when it comes to screen time. He's very much like the kid Sandy described. He totally zombies out in front of TV, and this has been the case since he has very much laid his eyes upon it when he was two years old. My daughter, on the other hand, she likes it. She'll sit there and watch, but she also wanders and plays and has a really easy time walking away from it. I'm definitely one that likes to read and follow research, but I also rely heavily on my mom instincts. Even though I had friends and family members telling me that the reason he wanted so much TV was because I never let him have it, my gut was still telling me otherwise. My gut was still telling me that no matter how much I gave him, it wouldn't be enough. We've gone long periods of time without any screen time in our house, and I actually went as far as getting rid of all of our televisions at one point. Because the constant seeking drove me absolutely crazy. And even when it was just a little bit of screen time, turning it off was immensely difficult for him. We actually, now that he's a little bit older, he's five, he's doing a lot better with this. But we'll have a conversation about it and he'll say, but I just love TV so much. It makes me so happy. And I say to him, but it makes you really upset and it makes you cry when I turn it off. And to me, that shows that it actually really upsets you. So it's kind of confusing when something can make you so happy and so sad all at the same time. The withdrawal of screen time from a kid like this feels like a detox. It feels like an addict coming off of drugs. Now, those, in fact, may be very strong words and comparisons, but that's what I thought of every time I would turn off the TV and I would struggle with my son's behavior. He's got this high when he's watching it. He's intensely engaged. But coming down off of it is immensely difficult. I will say this has gotten better and better as he's gotten older. So it's also gotten better and better since we've regulated the screen time, which I'll talk about more in a little while. So although at the time I couldn't really understand these dynamics going on in our house, I also couldn't shake the feeling that in some way this was related to the same sort of phenomena as a drug addict. For some children, there are absolutely commonalities between screen time and drugs. You're constantly seeking it. And coming off of it is incredibly difficult. And the more you get, the more you want. So of course, this isn't all kids. About 80% of kids will try drugs and only about 10% get addicted. So what makes those 10% get addicted? And on the same note, nearly 100% of kids try screen time, but a smaller percent get lost or zombied by screen time. What is it about these kids? Why does this happen to them? So this association led me to dive a little bit deeper into understanding the brain chemistry around screen time and the brain chemistry around addiction. Now, there isn't research to say that your screen time seeker is also going to be a drug seeker. And I'm certainly not implying that screen use will cause drug use. But I do think it's worth understanding the brains of our children so that we can best support them in their development. When it comes to the research around screen time, there is so much that we still don't know. Screen time use among children has increased so much in the past decade that the research hasn't yet caught up with it. We know that it's not good for kids, and there's lots of reasons for that. There's some preliminary research that shows it actually changes the structure and the wiring of brains when they consume too much. 
And there's also a lot of research that shows when kids are watching TV, they're missing out on critical opportunities to move and to play and to be active, which are vital elements in early childhood development. Back in the fall, I saw a trailer for the movie Beautiful Boy, which starred Steve Carell. Now, I'm not a big movie buff, and I'm not really one to see movie trailers and say, oh, I have to see that movie. But when I saw this movie trailer, I thought to myself, I have to see this movie. There was something inside of me, something in my intuition that was guiding me towards this story. So I couldn't seem to make it to the theaters, and instead I decided to read the book. And I'm so glad that I did, because the book is full of amazing research. The book is a memoir written by David Sheff. David is a journalist who has thrown himself into the research around addiction into better support his son. But so this book and through David's research around the brain chemistry of addiction really sent me down this rabbit hole of learning more about neurotransmitters and how individual brains can be more susceptible to addiction. So this process is far more complex than I'm going to explain to you today. So I'm going to oversimplify it. Many of us have heard about dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. You can think of a neurotransmitter like a messenger that carries chemicals around the brain. Those chemicals impact the way our brain operates. So back to dopamine, which is just one of many types of neurotransmitters. It's linked to pleasure, motivation, learning, and not surprising, addiction. You get a spike of dopamine when you open a gift. You get a spike of dopamine when the UPS guy drives up your driveway and delivers something. You get a big giant spike of dopamine when you go skydiving. There are certain drugs that are known to be highly addictive, like methamphetamines. Those drugs give the biggest spikes of dopamine. And screen time also gives dopamine spikes. So there's reason to believe that some people might have naturally lower levels of dopamine. And as a result, these varied levels of dopamine might leave certain individuals seeking more dopamine. We'll call them dopamine seekers. So I'm married to a dopamine seeker. My husband loves extreme sports, skydiving, bungee jumping, you name it. He's really at his best when he's been out on a three-hour bike ride and has had lots and lots of physical activity. Large amounts of physical exercise have profound positive impacts on his mood. He also could watch movies for hours. And once he's sucked in and absorbed into a movie, you sometimes have to call his name like 15 times in order to get his attention. The research shows us that television use and screen time gives our children dopamine spikes. So if you have a dopamine seeker, they're probably going to crave dopamine spikes more often. They're going to want larger quantities of it. There's a new movie that came out recently called Free Solo. It's a story of Alex Hinault. It's actually a documentary of how he climbed El Capitan without any equipment, which is like a 3,000-foot mountain straight up. Pretty much a recipe for death. So when my husband showed me the trailer, I don't think I've ever seen him so excited about any movie ever, and he is a huge movie buff. And when I saw this, this trailer of this guy climbing this mountain 3,000 feet straight up, without any harness, without any ropes, without any equipment, my immediate thought was, what is going on inside that brain? What is wrong with his brain? So I was pleasantly surprised that 
in the movie, they actually send him into an MRI machine and they look at his brain. Apparently, I'm not the only one that was wondering what the heck is going on in this guy's head. What they found was exactly what I'm describing here. His brain needed a ton of stimulus in order to activate those dopamine receptors. They showed him, while in the MRI machine, pictures of intense scenes that should typically evoke dopamine and other brain responses, and they elicited basically nothing from him. So what did that translate into in real life? It translated into this fact that he really had a physical and mental need to do things that were really extreme in order to feel his best. And when you listen to him describe his desire to climb this mountain without any ropes around any equipment, it's very clear that he is going to feel incomplete if he doesn't do this. That there's really nothing else that will satisfy him. His brain craves this intense risk and intense stimulus. So I think it's safe to say that Alex Hinald is a very, very extreme version of this. But when we look at the spectrum of brains, there are some that need more stimulus and more activity than other brains. My son and my husband are two of those people who need more. They're novelty seekers. They like to try new things. They like to do new things. They get easily bored. Now, thrill-seeking may or may not be a part of this. My son is far from a thrill-seeker, thankfully. So this confirms my suspicions that there's something different. My kid doesn't just want TV because he hasn't had enough of it. In fact, his brain wants more and more of it in order to feel satisfied, in order to feel some sense of normal or some sense of balance. The good thing is there are healthy ways that our kids and grown-ups can get dopamine without screen time and without drugs, without climbing 3,000-foot mountains sans ropes. Exercise is one fantastic way to boost dopamine levels, and making exercise a regular part of the routine multiple times a day for individuals such as this. It's so important that they're moving often, frequently, maybe even almost all the time. This is probably the person who would benefit from sitting on a ball rather than sitting in a desk chair at work. Another recommendation that I've read about is making things with your hands. So doing handicrafts or building things or creating things. Those can be excellent ways to give dopamine spikes as well. Both my husband and my son love trying new foods and traveling. Both things that can be associated with stimulus and dopamine spikes. Even though we live in the country, they both love, love visiting the city. My son actually cries when we get on the train to come home. So what do you do with all this information? As a mother, here's what I'm doing with it. I have this understanding that there's people in my life who need more stimulation, who are going to be novelty seekers, who are going to be easily bored, going to seek out a lot of screen time. So the best thing that I can do is to help provide opportunities to get that stimulation in healthy ways, like exercise, like time spent in nature, like building and creating things. We know that 
there are genetic differences in brains, whether it's hardwiring or the chemistry, the way that all the pieces are working together, the chemicals that are involved in that. It's really hard to know the specifics. And like I said, I'm definitely oversimplifying things today. But when it comes to screen time and kids, it might be important to consider if they have a unique brain chemistry. Sandy described some sensory processing challenges that her daughter had. And those challenges can come on a wide spectrum. Many, many kids have problems processing sensory input and challenges with this. Some grow out of it and don't need any kind of professional attention. Some have more significant needs and do need certain types of therapy and have a diagnosis. When I say unique brain chemistry, this might mean kids with sensory processing challenges, attention deficit challenges, kids on the autism spectrum, not necessarily kids who have something wrong with their brain, but kids who have slightly different ways of processing the world. And if this is a topic that interests you, understanding and reading a little bit about neurodiversity is a fascinating topic. The highly sensitive kid, like Sandy described, may also fit into this unique brain chemistry. Again, it's not wrong, it's just different. As a mother, understanding these differences has helped me to better appreciate my family. Because sometimes on Saturday mornings, I don't want to be on my own with the kids for three hours when my husband goes on a bike ride. But now I know he's not just doing it to be indulgent, but it's actually something that he needs for his well-being. And I know when my son gets bored or starts picking at his sister or asking for screen time, it's not because I've done anything wrong and it's not that he's just trying to get on my nerves, but it's because his brain is looking for stimulation and he's young And he's still trying to figure out the best ways to ask for it and the best ways to get it. And like I said, just because you have a kid who is a screen seeker doesn't mean he's going to be a drug seeker. But I know that personally, as my son gets older, I am going to do my darn best to make sure that he is informed about drugs and that he may in fact be at higher risk, despite the fact that the research isn't there to point to it yet. But I do give thanks every day that he's actually a very cautious kid and not a thrill seeker. So he's not going to be jumping out of airplanes and free selling mountains anytime soon. And I have forbid my husband from doing those things until our kids are at least adults. So in the U.S., the American Association of Pediatrics recommends keeping to less than two hours a day for most kids. And this recommendation is sort of changing every year. But for the most part, it's staying under two hours for young kids. Interestingly, the Canadian Association for Pediatricians, which is the similar body in Canada as to what we have in the U.S., has recommended that kids who have autism spectrum disorders or attention deficit disorder, you know, some of these unique brain chemistries that we've been talking about today, well, they recommend that these kids don't get any screen time because the belief is that the impact of screen time on these kids and their brains can be profound. There's also belief that the caregivers of these kids are under more stress and more likely to resort to using screen time more often. This variable is important to consider because we often use screen time when we need it the most, but when our kids need it the least. When your kids are super wiggly and won't hold still and they're driving you crazy, putting them in front of the screen is a guaranteed way to get them to calm down. But when they've got the wiggles and they can't hold still and they need to move, usually that's a sign that they need to move. So when you got a wiggly kid and you put him in front of the screen for an hour or so, that's not fixing the need to move. It's postponing it and sometimes intensifying it. 
therefore, when you pull them away from the TV, that need to move and that need for physical activity is going to come back and probably with a vengeance. So for that reason, I'm a big fan of scheduling screen time rather than using it as a reaction to difficult behavior. And on the same note, I'm also not a fan of using screen time to reward kids. So how does this translate into actual screen usage in our house? So I mentioned that I have long had guilt around giving my kids screen time and tried to avoid it as much as possible. And when I do give in and I give them screen time, I always feel guilty around it. Part of this is, in fact, because I know the research on it and I know that it's not good for my kids. But it's also this intuition that's guiding me to the fact that my son needs less than most. But I do wish that I had given myself more grace around this as my kids have been growing up. We have finally struck a balance so that every day after lunch, my kids get 40 minutes of screen time. My daughter picks a 20-minute show and then my son picks a 20-minute show. I'm careful to only allow shows that are rather low stimulation, so there's not a lot of fast-moving action, a lot of intensity. We don't do any kind of battle shows. But I want to fully admit that it really took having adequate childcare in order to get our screen time use under control. For the first four-plus years of my parenthood, I was a full-time stay-at-home mom, doing a PhD, building a business, trying to do it all and then beating myself up over the fact that I gave my kids more screen time than I wanted to. And I really wanted my kids having no screen time, so even an hour of screen time felt like too much. I never gave myself any grace around this. And the reason that my kids have this very well-regulated, minimal screen time each day now is because we have full-time childcare. If I was at home trying to do it all and manage it all and deal with the daily overwhelm, they'd definitely be getting more, and we'd probably definitely still be battling this. So part of finding my happiness as a mother has been to be working more and having more support with my kids. That makes me the best mom that I can be. And it's been a blessing that it's also resulted in less screen time for my kids. So if you're in this position where you are beating yourself up about giving your kids too much screen time, stop. Just stop. You are doing the best you can with the resources that you have available to you. I'm hoping that some of the information I gave you today will resonate with you and will help you to be better informed when you're making decisions for your kids. But if you're using screen time as a break and you need that break to be your best, then take it because that's the most important thing. Our kids need happy, balanced, calm parents. And if you need screen time for that, you shouldn't feel guilty about it for a minute. So I've said a lot today and I hope that some of this makes sense. If it resonates with you, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. If you have questions or comments or information to add on this episode, I would love to hear from you. Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 145 and you can leave those in the comments. If you want to stay in touch with Simple Families, go to simplefamilies.com and at the top there's a place to leave your email address. That will put you on the email list, which is the best place to stay in touch. You'll get the updates on what's going on on the blog, on the podcast, and in the community. Thanks for tuning in.